Thank you, Chris and Grace. And I didn't get a chance to ask them earlier, so I'd like to, uh, when we close, if you all would do 545. So just come, uh, come on up when I'm closing in prayer and, and we close in, in number 545. Well, we've been seeing here, and I'll tell you, working on these series of messages, I haven't encountered the kind of spiritual opposition, uh, both in preparation leading up to and even during the week this week, like I've seen in, in working in this series. Somebody didn't want you to get this series, I'll tell you that, in, in the area of the spiritual realm. So uh, to me, that's something that, that reminds us that the kind of battle we are in. It's a spiritual conflict. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We mustn't get discouraged. We must persevere through Christ. And uh, one of the things that we've been seeing is it's, it's not God's intention for the child of God to just stay in the wilderness, is it? You know, to just kind of go around in circles in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is not <clears throat> a picture of unbelief. We, we know that the, the blood was believed in. The Passover occurred while they were still in Egypt. They're brought through the Red Sea. And then they go into the wilderness experience. And, of course, they get to Kadesh Barnea in a little under two years, I think it is. And that's when the challenge was to go into the land. And they choose not to go. And so they wander for 38 more years in the wilderness. But there were victories there. So we mustn't forget that. But there was the provision of manna, for instance, that the Lord provided for them supernaturally. Uh, he protected them with the uh, pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. That was supernatural protection. And, and the analogy for us in the Christian life, as I see it, is that this would be the early stages of someone after they're saved. And, and if you look back on your life, it's a humbling thing to think about sometimes. But if you look back in the early days, the Lord was carrying us. <laughs> I mean, we, we sometimes take more credit than we should in those early stages in Christian growth and discipleship. And He supernaturally carries us and protects us probably in ways we didn't even thank Him for. <laughs> I can say that for myself. But eventually... He wants us to move into the promised land. He wants us to move into a deeper experience with Him. He wants, to, wants us to move into a, uh, crossing that Jordan. We move now into enemy territory. And there's a stage in our Christian growth and discipleship where as we continue to grow, suddenly we begin to experience opposition and discouragements that we didn't quite have before. And that's what the picture of moving into the promised land is. I know we have a few hymnal, hymns in the hymnal that talk about, you know, the promised land being a picture of heaven, crossing the Jordan being a picture of death. But that, that's not what we see. Obviously, in the, New, in the Old Testament, they, they didn't die. They went on to have a very fruitful existence and to have a kingdom experience and a testimony for God in the land. They, they did have victories. And I, I would go so far as to say, you know, we tend to, we, since we have the detailed record of Israel's strengths and weaknesses, failures and accomplishments in the Old Testament, we tend to be rather critical of them. But I think if we had a similar record, which we don't, of the last 2,000 years of church history, I think the church has failed in many ways worse than Israel did, <laughs> especially in the Middle Ages but even after the Reformation, you think of the Reformers and how they brought the deliverance of the doctrine of uh, sola fide, you know, saved by 
faith alone and Christ alone and all of that, but then but they didn't go far enough. You know, they didn't get delivered from the ecclesiastical, uh, clerical ideas of the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't move anywhere into eschatology. They just adopted Augustinian eschatology from the early days of the Middle Ages, which was amillennial. And so there, was, there were a lot of areas where they didn't make as much progress as maybe we would have liked them to. And so we still struggle. And so there are great lessons that we learn here from this experience of the children of Israel crossing the Jordan into the promised land, into the place of really fruitful service for them. And so we want to move now. I just want to finish off where we were there at the end of chapter 4, and then we'll just look at chapter 5 tonight. Those first five chapters form an introduction to the book. And as I suggested to you, I believe an introduction to the entire historical book section that begins with Joshua and goes all the way to the book of Esther. Twelve books. So that the first five chapters of Joshua form an introduction to all of that, as well as an introduction to Joshua. And then beginning in chapter 6, they begin to really start conquering their, the, the foes, the, the Jericho experience and those that followed. And maybe if the Lord leads in the future, that may be something. I think it's still very profitable. There are many lessons to learn even from that section uh, with regard to the Christian life and walk. But here in verse 19 of chapter 4, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit, records this particular event because it's important. They camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. So the Lord records the actual date. When they moved, they, now they are in the promised land. Gilgal is the first place they set camp on the west bank, the Jordan River, just north of Jericho. We don't know. It's interesting. Uh, historically and archaeologically, we don't know exactly where Gilgal is. <laughs> uh, there's, there are a few areas there in the land where we think it might have been, but there is no, nothing has been preserved there. Rather interesting that the Lord didn't do that. He could have if he wanted to. And there, the twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, verse 20, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Twelve stones. So this is the first marker, if you will. First sign. And there will be three more of them that occur in chapter 5. Four signs, four markers all together. And we see a, a very valuable principle here that the Lord establishes, that it's very profitable for us to set up milestones and markers for us in our spiritual journey as well. I don't know if you do that, and journaling is a great way to do that, and one aspect of journaling is what is often referred to as life mapping. And, and, it, and it's interesting, you go back over your life and you can see that there will be certain stages with the help of God and the Holy Spirit. He will illuminate us to see there were certain stages of growth. I divided mine into four main sections. And then I subdivide those into four sections each. And, and you can see the progress and it gives great encouragement to us. And there are great lessons we can learn. There were certain struggles that were in this section that then they didn't repeat, thank the Lord. But other struggles filled their place, right? And, it, and this is what God is saying. These markers, these milestones are important, especially in days of spiritual conflict. When you're prone to be discouraged. 
when you're prone to spiritual depression, that's when these markers, we can go open the, the journal and go back to them and read through them, be reminded whose we are, how faithful God is, what we've already been able to accomplish by His grace, and therefore what we will continue to be able to do by His grace. But one thing we saw this morning, crossing the Jordan, there's, a, there's only one way you're going to get across that Jordan. And that's by God. <laughs> it's going to take supernatural ability to do it. And there's only one person, for us who are believers, there's only one person who's going to lead us across that Jordan, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And He does lead us. He goes before us, just as the Ark of the Covenant led Israel out. And they were to keep that distance so they could see the Ark, and all of them could see it. And, and move across and see that the Lord is the one that was opening the way. Not even Joshua. Not even the leaders. Not even the Levites and the priests could do this. Only God to do it. But he had his instruments, didn't he? And these little things that he gave them, visuals, to help their faith. And our faith does need that help. So he spoke to the children of Israel, verse 21, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying... What are these stones, Daddy? Why this stack of 12 stones? You see, this is the great way that the Lord teaches the next generation. The parents teaching the children. And that's still the progress that the Lord does in the assembly. And if you, don't, if you aren't given children by the Lord, you can still do that through the means of the assembly. Vacation Bible school, Friday night youth group, Friday night children's meetings, and, and lots of other ways. Vacation Bible school, did I mention that one? Camp and those things that, that we can use even for those of us who don't have children. We can be involved in the lives of children. But the children ask these questions and we're glad. Aren't you glad when your children ask spiritual questions? Well, let's have spiritual, biblical answers for them, too. I don't mind anyone that wants to come up and ask questions as long as they'll let me use the Bible to answer them. That's the thing. I don't want to answer them from history, necessarily, or, or from evolutionary uh, atheism. I want it from the Bible. If they'll let me answer it from the Bible, I'm happy to take any question that God provides Answers for, and you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. Now they're going to look at that. That Jordan was at flood stage every harvest season. And the children are going to look at it. You crossed that on dry land? Yes, that's where these 12 stones, they came out of the riverbed, right in the middle of the riverbed. Joshua had us bring them out and so forth. So there's an element of faith now, you see. For the next generation. And the next generation. And that's why we've always seen that the, the first generation, someone who comes to faith and is the first in their family, in their generation, there are certain things that, that, that they have commitments and strengths in their commitment to the Lord that the next generation, it's very hard to pass that on. And then the grandchildren, it's, it's even harder. Because the children are brought up in a secure environment. They're brought up hearing the Word of God all the time. They take it for granted. They take for granted the Lord's Supper. They take for granted meeting with the Christians. That first generation Christian, man, they can't wait to be there. They can't wait to testify for the Lord. And so that's always a challenge. And that's why the Lord provides these markers. These remembrances, see. 
For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, linking Red Sea crossing with the Jordan crossing right here in this verse. And then verse 24, one of the great purpose statements in Joshua. That, when you see that, that's an in order that, that's a purpose clause, right? That all the peoples of Israel, is that what it says? That all the peoples of the earth, right? So this testimony wasn't just for the people of Israel. It was a testimony to the lost peoples of the Gentiles as well. That God, the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. See, And likewise, your conversion experience and my conversion experience is a, an illustration of the mighty hand of God at work in a human's life. And no one can take that away from you. You may not be able to answer all the theological questions that someone may ask you on the outside. I mean, outside of the church. I mean, unbelievers. But no one can take away from you the truth of your testimony. Whereas once I was blind, now I see. Whereas once I was dead, now I'm alive. Whereas once I was in darkness, now I'm in light, and I know it. Whereas once I was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven, and I know it. Do you know it tonight? If you don't know it, you need to talk to one of us, because you're, you may be self-deceived, you may be tricking yourself and pretending here in church. I, I, don't, I spent enough time pretending, playing church when I was a kid. There isn't enough time left to play church. We've got to be real. We've got to be real here and we've got to be real in the world. The world wants reality. But if we show them reality, they will respond, especially the millennials. That's one of the things we're seeing about the, that particular generation, that once they're convinced, it takes a lot to convince them, but once they're convinced, they will really give themselves to the Lord. And so we want to participate in that with God, don't we? It's part of our privilege. So then the Lord adds a little summary statement in chapter 5, verse 1. A powerful statement here because it flows right out of verse 24 of chapter 4. So it was, remember, that all the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over. What happened? That their heart melted. <laughs> what does that mean? that they lost the stamina and courage to resist what God was about to do. And no spirit was found in them and any longer because of the children of Israel. Now, God had pre predicted this, and, and if you want to see it for yourself, I'd encourage you to see it. God had predicted this, in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in Deuteronomy chapter 2, and in chapter 7 and chapter 11. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, I'm still turning there, 
the Lord had told the children of Israel that it was a good land they were going to and that the Lord would put the fear of them upon their enemies. He says that we will go, he, they had said, verse 41, they will go up and fight, and, and that's in chapter 1, and they, of course, were not ready for what he was about to do. So he says in verse 25 of chapter 2, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under what? The whole heaven. Who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble in being anguished because of you. Well, he predicted it. Through Moses here on the eastern side of the Jordan. Now they're on the western side of the Jordan and it's beginning to happen in Joshua chapter 5. Over in chapter 7, a few pages over, still in Deuteronomy, the Lord has said that in verse 17, if you, you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I am, how can I dispossess them? I want us to think about this. Remember, we're not thinking about conquering nations here now in the application to us in the church, but we are talking about Spiritual forces in the places of wickedness, right? In the places of unbelief in the heart. Have you ever been in a situation where you were afraid for your life as a believer? Because of your testimony of being linked to Christ. Because you were identified with Christ, you feared for your life. And suddenly you found that the people you were fearing were more afraid of you than you were of them. Well, that's of the Lord, you see. That's what the Lord's talking about here. It, it even happened earlier this year in my life where, where I saw that I, I could tell the way that people were reacting toward me. They were much more respectful, unbelievers, much more respectful than, than I expected to be in a particular situation and I knew I said Lord thank you for putting the fear of the Lord upon them they knew that a servant of the Lord was there somehow however they would think of it and identify it but but they were respectful not because of me or any power within me or anything within me but because of the Holy Spirit who's within us the, the Spirit of God you see you see, we're talking about spiritual conflict here. We're not talking about easy chair Christianity, right? We're not talking about sermonettes for Christianettes. We're moving past that, right? We're, we're moving into the realm where we're really being a testimony for God and people know it. And that's where the opposition comes. And then over in chapter 11 in Deuteronomy, again, the Lord says that, remember, this is quoted right in... Joshua chapter 1, almost verbatim, verse 22, Deuteronomy 11. For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him, and that hold fast, I think, is the same word as cleave, given in Genesis 2, a husband and wife that he would cleave. This is cleaving to God like that, see? In a very close, intimate relationship... Then, if you'll do that, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. And you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. In other words, this is going to require supernatural power that you don't have. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Remember, this is what Joshua's told in chapter 1. It's, it's quoted right from here. There's so much. <laughs> That's why Deuteronomy is so important, beloved. 
you will find, if you spend time reading through the Old Testament, and some of you, I think, haven't spent much time in the Old Testament based on some of the questions I'm getting, but if you'll spend time in the Old Testament, you will find that much of what's told in Deuteronomy is what's quoted in the historical books, the 12 historical books that follow. Kings, Chronicles, Samuel are quoting Deuteronomy, see? And our Lord Himself quotes it three times on the Mount of Temptation, doesn't He? So He says, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as He has said to you, And we come to Joshua chapter 5, and the Lord repeats it again. This isn't new information in 5.1 of Joshua. This is repetition of what He's already promised them and told them. Only now, it's instead of prediction, it's happening. It's present circumstance. So, the heart melted of the people. But that doesn't mean, as I said this morning, that they gave up the battle. You would think, logically, if the heart melted and the spirit within them fainted, that they would give up the battle. But this isn't something logical. This is something supernatural, isn't it? Satan is energizing these nations to resist the will of God. He knows that it's God's purpose to put Israel in the land to be a testimony for him, and that God intended to dwell there, and that happened. God did it. And Satan knows that he has, God has saved you and me and put us into the church of Jesus Christ and we are a testimony for God in this community and anywhere he wants to use us and send us. Until we go home to glory, we're a testimony for God and we will encounter spiritual opposition. Amen? At that time, verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So this is now the second sign, the sign of circumcision, which again isn't new. We're not finding about this the first time in Joshua, right? This was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Way back in Genesis chapter 17. But look at what happened at the time of the people in the wilderness. They were not following even what Abraham had done 400 years before. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised his sons. By the way, if you're about to go into your first huge military battle, which is Jericho, I mean, they are within sight of the walls of Jericho and Gilgal. Is circumcision something that you want to do right before a big military battle? No. I mean, suddenly you put the entire nation at risk. What's God saying? It's more important to obey His Word and trust Him for the victories than to form our own schemes in our own wisdom, in our own strength. God's not worried about the timetable here. They said, well, we're over here, we're in the land now, Joshua, let's get our 
or military weapons together. We better get down there to Jericho. Let's, let's hurry. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> Make camp. You're going to be here a few days here in Gilgal. I said, I've got Jericho taken care of. I know what I'm going to do there. So Joshua made the flint knives. And this is, verse 4, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Okay, what is it, Lord? All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way, just as we've been reading about. After they'd come out of Egypt, for all the people who came out had been circumcised. So they were still doing circumcision while they were slaves in Egypt. They were still honoring the ritual of the Abrahamic covenant. And then when God delivers them, they stop for some reason. Sound familiar? And so he, all the people who had been out, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now, this is basic, beloved. For us, the parallel to circumcision is probably the ritual of baptism that we do. And it also is a sign and a reminder. It encourages all of us. And I know some Christians that have been Christians, that profess to be Christians for 10 or 15 years. And have you been baptized? And they've never been baptized. And upon further questioning and, and talking to them, I find out they haven't been involved in service for the Lord either. And they kind of connect, don't they? <laughs> if you won't do the first elementary step of obedience, why would He trust you with more? And there are different reasons why... Different circumstances that cause that in people. But that's the first step of obedience. Once someone is saved, is to publicly identify with the Lord Jesus through baptism and to demonstrate in their own thought and mind they have died to the old and they're alive to the new life in Christ. That's what baptism signifies. So they... They hadn't been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt. This is about the eighth time we've been told this. <laughs> what do you think Lord is telling us when He repeats that eight times? There were consequences to the rejection of the Lord's will at Kadesh Barnea, weren't they? These people did not give the privilege of serving the Lord and representing Him in the promised land. You see, some of us may say, well, I don't care. I'd, I'd just soon be with them. Not me. I hope you're not like that. But I've got to believe that there's a few in this room at least that really want to serve the Lord and represent Him in the promised land, in the place of opposition, in the place of challenges, but also the place of fruitfulness and usefulness. Amen? And they come out of Egypt, were consumed because they did not obey. Notice the voice of the Lord. What did we say when we were covering chapter 1 and chapter 2? The importance of the voice of the Lord. To whom the Lord swore that He would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that He would give us. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land flowing with productiveness. That's what that means. 
And some of the ministries that, that we have in our country here have adopted that title, Milk and Honey Ministries, and different ways of using that name. It's a great picture of what it is to be useful for God, to be fruitful for Him. It was a land that just flowed with blessing. Doesn't look like that now, as we say. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place. We saw that this morning. Remember the Lord said the ones, your children, whom you said would be victims because I wouldn't protect them when they went in the land. They're the ones going in, and here they are. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was. When they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed... A process of a few days, vulnerable to the enemy, but the enemy doesn't attack them. Why didn't the enemy attack them? Why didn't the people, do you think the Jericho people didn't see them all? Sure, they they were probably spying too. And they knew, but why didn't they attack them? What did we read in verse 1? The fear of the Lord had been put upon the people of Jericho. And they were frightened to paralysis. And I'm thankful for myself, I hope you are too, when you're in a position where the enemy's about to pounce on you, I'm thankful when the Lord frightens them to paralysis. How about you? I'm, I'm, not, inter- I'm not into masochism. <laughs> We're not in this just to, because we love pain. You know, I mean, that isn't what, what the spiritual life is about. We recognize that the spiritual conflict brings pain, right? And, but God's going to use that pain for good if we let Him. It's going to bring opposition. It's going to bring difficulty. Then the Lord said to Joshua, verse 9, Here is the instruction. What the circumcision ritual was to teach them and therefore to teach us. This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal. Well, what was the reproach of Egypt? Well, you could argue that Egypt is often represented as a picture of the world, and I think you could add the devil in there too because of the false gods that were there, and there were some 100 of them in their pantheon of false gods. But the reproach of Egypt was the slavery, the oppression, being abused by the taskmasters, being in a position of uselessness to God, really. There was, there was virtually no testimony for God for the people of Israel during the time frame of their slavery. Under the time frame of Joseph, it was different, but the things had changed, hadn't they? And now they were in that position, the reproach of Egypt. God says, I took it away. I cut it away and threw it away from you. What's the application to you and me? The evils of our old life, the abuses of ourselves and others, the addictions maybe that He's delivered us from, the, the wrong thinking and wrong attitudes. When we are 
baptized, we need to be telling ourselves and marking it down in our calendar that from here on, God has rolled away my reproach of my evil past too. That's what Romans 6 teaches, doesn't it? As well as Ephesians 4. To put that away. To see it actually in Ephesians 4, it's probably useful to see. We've been trying to make that link in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, he puts it this way, but you have not so learned Christ. (laughs) Talking about the, the evil and darkness of the lost world being past feeling and having given themselves over to lewdness and work all kinds of uncleanness. But you haven't so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt. And according, you notice it's still growing corrupt. The old man doesn't start growing, stop growing. The flesh continues to grow corrupt as we age. But, it, but we have to recognize we put it off. We, God has rolled away the reproach of Egypt and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man. Ephesians 4, 20 and following there, if you're marking that down. God has brought us into new life. He's not just rejuvenating the old life. He's not just patching up the flesh. He's rolling it away. He's putting it away. He's not doctoring up because it can't be doctored up, can it, according to Romans 8. We heard that this morning. It doesn't want to do the will of God, nor indeed can it. You can't doctor up the flesh. You've got to be born again. And when you're born again, there are changes that happen. There are things that God does to us. And then we need to live on the basis of what He's done. So I think that's what the Lord's teaching here. That's the second sign. Then the third sign in verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal. Okay, Lord, we've been told that. And kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Wait a minute. You're in enemy territory now. The army of Jericho is right there a few miles down the way and ready to pounce on you. You've already gone through circumcision and that's immobilized you and now you're going to celebrate Passover? Come on! Of course, we know that Christ, our Passover, has been slain. That the Lord's Supper is the picture, I think, closest to link to Passover. It's the, the, the somewhat substitutionary atonement that someone has taken our place and taken the judgment for us. And can you imagine that in the, in the thick of a particular spiritual battle, someone maybe in our meeting going through something that we know is a difficult challenge for him to say, well... We're still going to have the Lord's Supper, brother. (laughs) We're still going to remember the Lord. Now, I know some Christians don't. Some Christians say when they're going through a difficult time, they stay home. That's exactly what the devil wants them to do. That's the place of weakness for them. Their place of strength is with the other Christians, and the the devil knows that. So he says, no, stay back there in your easy chair and watch TV at home. I mean, you're depressed today. You don't need to be out today with the saints. Right. That's the wrong way. What is right? Yeah. No, when we gather together to remember the Lord, that's the place of strength for us. 
You know that. You've experienced it. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, something supernatural happens. You say, every week? No, no, you can't, you can't expect it every week. How many of your friends, your young friends that celebrate it once a quarter or twice a year, do they ask you? They say, well, you can't do it every week. You don't expect to get a blessing every week. That's taking advantage of God. Is that what they say to you? I've had them say that to me. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you do it. So my question to them is, can you remember the Lord too often? I don't think so. And if your question is, yes, you can remember him too often, talk to one of us after the meeting. I don't think you understand the gospel. You don't understand how much Christ died for you, what he suffered for you, how much he loves you, and we need to have a talk. And we need to pray for some illumination here. Because there's nothing like what Christ has done. And that ought to touch us in a deep way. So they celebrate the Passover, which is a reminder to them of their deliverance from Egypt, from bondage, from slavery. Just as the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that we've been delivered from bondage to sin, judgment, death, and hell. And brought into the place of power, resurrection, new life, regeneration. And they ate, verse 11, they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover. The word of God is so precise. Because you read and you start, oh, no, wait, Lord. They, they could have done that on the day of the Passover. They're supposed to eat unleavened bread and parched grain. No, he says, no, they, <laughs> no, we did it right. We followed the instructions of the word of God, see. He says, they eat the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day of the Passover. Okay, we're good. But this is the first time now they're eating of the produce of the land in Canaan. Now, who cultivated that produce of the land? The Canaanites did. Who, was, who were the ones who gathered it up? The Canaanites did. Who were the ones who built the houses that Israel just moved into? The Canaanites did. Who built the walled cities that Israel moved into? The Canaanites did. Who dug the wells? Many of them were dug by the Canaanites. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob dug a few of them too, right? See what God did? He does the same for you and me. He brings us into things of areas of blessing where others did the work. We get the benefits of it. That's just the grace of God, isn't it? Now, and at the same time, then the manna ceased on the day after they'd eaten the produce of the land. Oh, the manna. For their entire journey out of Egypt up to this point, they had been supernaturally provided Food and sustenance by God. And remember when the Lord gave instructions for the manna, how often were they to gather it? Every day. Thank you. Good. Daily. 
And if they tried to gather it up for today and, to, and, and for tomorrow too, because, man, I don't want to put on, I want to leave my slippers and robe on, and I don't want to get, get dressed and have to collect it again, so I'll gather it for two days and save myself the trouble. What happened? It corrupted in their tents, didn't it? They couldn't eat it. <laughs> because the Lord was teaching a lesson there, that you gather daily from the bread of life, the Lord Jesus and His Word, that's to be gathered daily. He taught them that in the wilderness. Did they continue to apply it? Probably not. Do we? Maybe not. I hope you'll consider or reconsider if you're not doing this. I couldn't go on a day now without the Word of God and the feeding of the Word of God. He's brought me to that place. But it wasn't like that when I was a baby Christian. When I was a baby Christian, he had to supply it, you know. And so I'd be listening to Christian radio, and I'd get a word here and a word there. And then somebody maybe would hand me a tract, and I'd get one little verse, you know. And I was so happy to get that one verse, you know, or a piece of a verse. And, you know, this is what, when you're young in the faith, that's okay. But not after you've been saved for 20 years. Come on. One of the things, see, he was supernaturally, they didn't have to cultivate the manna. He just provided, all they had to do was gather it. But now they're the produce of the land. Now they're in the land of Canaan. Now they're going to have to work for it. Are you with me? You know, as you move to a certain stage of maturity in the Christian life, you find out that you've got to dig a little deeper on your own in the Word of God. It takes a little time. It may take some sweat. It may take some inconvenience. It may take saying no to some things that we think are priorities, but they're not. Because this is the priority, our relationship with God. What a lesson, huh? In a book that's 3,500 years old. (laughs) You see, there are still lessons we can learn, aren't there? Now, some may say, and this is where we move into that area of typology I was talking about this morning, that the, I think in the King James, it's the old corner of the land, right? The produce of the land. And perhaps you could make a case for this. I wouldn't stress this too far. But the manna was from heaven. And, of course, the Lord says, talks about the manna in John 6, that he is the manna from heaven. He is the bread of life. So you could, you could say, perhaps... That the manna was a picture of our Lord's deity in the old corner of the land, his humanity. And that as when we're first saved, we're focused maybe more on his deity. And we're, we're fascinated by it because we need to know how strong he is. See? We need to know that he's God. I knew about the Lord Jesus and his humanity more than I did about his deity before I was saved in the Roman Catholic Church. But then... After I got saved, I realized, hey, he's not on that crucifix anymore. He's up in heaven. He's in the place of power. I don't push him around in a little cradle anymore. He's God, see. And I had to learn that. But then as we grow as Christians, one of the real benefits to our fellowship and relationships with one another is to recognize his perfect humanity. And we see in the Gospels how he interacted with people, hurting people. And we learn, wow, how he dealt with the woman at the well was a certain way and how he dealt with the widow of Nain as a different way. How he dealt with certain of the disciples that were closer to him. How he dealt with other disciples that weren't as close. And that is enriching as well. That could be, could be 
read into as an application here. But I think the basic truth is that now they were going to have to work for, it's still, it's hard to almost call it work. You could put it in quotes. Because the land was so fruitful, I mean, I don't think they even, you know, we, does anybody here know what a plow looks like? I know Beulah did work on a farm, but I mean, especially with a mule, right? I mean, they didn't have tractors. You had to do pull that plow with a mule. And have you seen pictures of it, how you had to hold on and hold that blade in the ground? And you're riding that thing to hold it in there, and you're being shaken all over, and you're hoping that mule's going to go a straight row, and they usually did, I'm told. Great thing the way that God made that animal. But they didn't have to do that there. That ground was so fertile, like the Lord says in the parable of the sower, you just throw the seed. And then the rain pushes it in. They're finding out that that soil is still fertile after being in dormancy for 1,500 years. It's the breadbasket of the entire Middle East, I'm told, and parts of Europe. The flowers that the, the Dutch mail all over the world, many of those flowers come from the Holy Land, come from Israel. And I've never seen corn as green, green-blue, turquoise kind of, as, as I've seen it there. That comes from the nutrients in the soil. This is what the Lord was giving them. And they, they, they no longer ate the manna. And then lastly, in verses 13 to 15, we looked at it. I'll just say a few words about it in closing. We looked at that before. Here is Joshua. He's looking at Jericho. And he's thinking, let's see. <laughs> I think there are two walls there. The spies told us they went in there and, oh man, how are we going to ever? How, and then he sees a man standing over there with a sword drawn. You with us or you with them? What are you doing here? <laughs> you ever been in a position where you've done that with God? You had to be checked a little bit and be humble a little bit and realize who's really the commander here. Hebrews chapter 2 says he's the captain of our salvation. One of the great titles, the archegos, the one who goes before and leads into victory. Used again in Hebrews chapter 12, the author and finisher of our faith. Same word, same word, commander, captain, archegos. It's a great descriptive word of our Lord Jesus. He's the captain of our salvation. And he's concerned about our every need. And the Lord reminds him, No, but as, verse 14, But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You see, Joshua, you're getting ready to encounter your first big opposition, Jericho. They would have some, the military victories, beloved. If you get a chance to read through chapters 6 through 12 and do it with a, with a map in front of you and see the geography, and when you go over to the land, when we were working around Bryant Wood, Dr. Bryant Wood, the archaeologist, the Christian archaeologist working at AI. There have been three locations proposed for AI traditionally over the years. And I think the location that he had found, the more, most recent one, is the most accurate. And we stood there. We had found, we had dug down to the, we were helping a little bit, and we got down to where the gate was. They found the pile of rocks that the king was buried under outside the gate, just like the Bible says. And you stand there at the gate and you look over to your left and there's that steep hill on the side where Bethel is. And you look to the north and you see the valley where they came up. And you look to the right and you see exactly like the Bible describes it. 
And the victories they accomplished for God were enormous and supernatural because they trusted in the Lord. Beloved, He wants to do something like that with you and me. I trust the Holy Spirit has wet our appetite. He's wet my appetite, I'll tell you that, in working on this. And I trust He's wet our appetite a little more to be more available to the Master's use. So if, if we can close in this hymn, 545, I know we've gone over a few minutes here. If we can still do that, Chris and Grace, and I'll close in prayer while they come up. Father, we thank You, O Lord, for the instruction You've given to us. We thank You for every saint that's here. We thank You for the saints that maybe wanted to be here and couldn't make it, Lord. Or some of them may be struggling with sickness and illnesses. We thank You, O Lord, that You have called us out to bring us in. And we want to serve you and represent you and glorify your name. You alone are holy. You alone are Lord. And we want to glorify you. Help us, O Lord, to be available vessels fit for the master's use. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.